Welcome to Under the Oaks. I'm Lauren Thompson. And I'm Pastor Trent Sari. <laughs> hey, stop that. Stop it. That was rude. I, I don't understand. Why were they laughing at me? I didn't even say anything. It's our audience. I tell you, what a, what a rowdy group. But um, before we get started, um, we do have some housekeeping to do. We, we've got a message from one of our listeners. Inez wrote in to say she really missed the applause at the end of the episode last time because she'd like to uh, join in and clap along to uh, celebrate that the episode is finally over. Yeah. Couldn't come soon enough. Thanks. uh, (laughs) Thanks for the input, Inez. That's, uh, well, uh, I I promise I'll I'll hit the applause button so that the audience will clap this time. The ending is everyone's favorite part, so. Yeah, well, I understand. (laughs) I, I get it. Well, obviously, we don't take ourselves too seriously here. Uh, welcome to the end of the Oaks, and this is episode, I think we're on 10 now. 10. Yeah, we're in double digits. This is uh, quite a milestone for us. Anyways, uh, in one of our earlier episodes, we talked about every so often during the course of uh, our discussions, we're going to spend a little time looking at Bible history. And there's, there's a variety of reasons for that, but remember that the Bible's not just a, a book about various doctrines, right? It's usually set in a history, a narrative, a story of a people, of many people, and over many years. And it's in that context that we, we learn about God's great love for us in his promise of a Savior in the Old Testament, in his fulfillment of that Savior in the New Testament. And so there, there's a great importance for us to have some sort of framework or a basic understanding of Bible history so that we can appreciate the story of our salvation, and we understand when we're talking about all these different teachings, how they fit into that story as well. So we spent uh, some time, a few episodes, maybe many episodes ago now, talking about history from creation to about the time of the Passover, when Moses led the people of Israel out of Egypt, and then the giving of the law. So that's where we're going to pick up today. We're going we're gonna to talk about Bible history again, and we're going to talk about what took place where we left off from last time. So we're, today we're going to start off right around 1490 B.C., and Israel is still wandering in the wilderness. So remember, we kind of left off, if you can remember that way back then, at Sinai, Mount Sinai, where God had given the law to his people through the hand of Moses. And while at Sinai, God has Israel build the tabernacle. It's a sort of a portable temple. It's kind of a tent, a fancy tent that they could uh, tear down and set back up. Uh, Not as simple as the tents we have nowadays, but certainly it was ornate and it was served as the central place of worship for Israel. It was the place where God's presence resided amongst his people. It was where the the Ark of the Covenant was housed and the two tables of the law that God had given to Moses. And, of course, God had uh, described or dictated to his people the daily worship and the sacrifices that the children of Israel were to make, and it's important as we read those things, as strange as it might sound to our ears, that those things were foreshadowing. They were pointing forward. 
They were a constant reminder that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. It was a constant reminder that the people of Israel, all people, need purifying from sin, that they need atonement from sin, uh, and that God has to cover their sin. So all of those sacrifices pointed forward. And you might say, well, pointed forward to what? They pointed forward to the once and all, for all sacrifice that Jesus Christ would make on the cross. It was his bloodshed that would truly atone for our sins, that would truly cover our sins, and that would bring peace between God and man. But one of the things in the daily life of these people of Israel is there was this constant reminder because they had to bring these sacrifices daily and weekly and monthly and and yearly to the priest to, to make on their behalf. There was a daily reminder that they needed atonement for sin. So, It might sound strange to our ears, but this was a very important part of the worship life of the children of Israel. Now, after leaving Mount Sinai, Israel uh, resumed its journey towards the Promised Land, and they did some reconnaissance. They discovered that the nations that were living in Canaan were very strong, and of course, that was scary to them, and uh, they decided that they they might need to choose a new leader. So they threatened to choose a new leader in the place of Moses, and they began to uh, long for the days of Egypt, even though they had been enslaved there. They remember the food that they had there, the the leeks and the melons. It talks about them longing for the leeks and melons they had back in Egypt. Uh, It's kind of sad after they've seen some pretty miraculous things. We think about the Passover, marching through the waters of the sea that was parted before them. In all of these things, God provided them with miraculous food in the form of manna from heaven, quail and stuff in the desert, and yet we're very nearsighted. Sinful man is very nearsighted. They quickly forget about that thing and they think, oh, maybe God's abandoned us. Maybe he's brought us out here to die or whatever it might have been. So for their lack of faith, God condemns them to 40 years of wandering in that wilderness. And of all of the the people that are 20 years of age or older, uh, eventually only Joshua and Caleb, who didn't join in that complaining, by the way, are going to set foot into the promised land. Now, Moses, because of a former act of disobedience, is only permitted to see the promised land from a distance. And this kind of brings up, I think, an important point. When we read the Old Testament, when we read the New Testament, the Bible is very honest in its depictions of the saints, the believers of all ages. And I remember going through Sunday school as a kid, you'd hear the stories of David or Moses or Joshua or whoever it might have been, and you picture these people as sort of superheroes in your own mind. You know, we've seen the superhero movies in our day and age. These people are pretty much invincible. But that's not the way that the Bible pictures these great heroes of the faith. In fact, it pictures them warts and all, their weaknesses, their weaknesses of the flesh, their weaknesses in their faith. Uh, They were very much like you and I. And this is actually kind of comforting because it makes us realize that if they can be saved, we too can be saved, right? You know, that they struggle with the same temptations, the same weaknesses that we suffer with, and yet God save them in spite of that by his grace and mercy. So Moses included in that statement, so that's why I brought that up there. 
Moses dies on Mount Nebo, where the Lord himself buries him in an unknown grave. Yeah, so they don't know where Moses was buried. And this is probably a good thing because he was kind of almost looked at almost like a superhuman in, in many ways. So it's better that they didn't know. But in his place, Joshua takes over as the new leader of Israel. Joshua is a very interesting character. He has a very interesting and important role as the people of Israel now go forth and enter into the promised land. So he leads the people, not through a parted sea, but now through the parted waters of the Jordan River and into the land of Canaan, the promised land of Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, this is, you know, Joshua is important for a variety of different reasons. And if you read the book of Joshua, you'll, you know, you'll see why he was a good captain or military general, if you want to say that, or, you know, he, he, he was a very good leader. But in many ways, Joshua is a type, a prefiguring of the person and work of our Savior Jesus Christ. And I can't remember if I mentioned that in the previous episode that we had on church history. But when we talk about typology, it's the study of people, places, and events in the Old Testament that foreshadowed or pointed forward to their greater fulfillment in the new. And, you know, Jesus himself would speak in this way when he'd say, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in, in the wilderness and whoever looked at him, that serpent would be saved from death, so must the Son of Man be raised up that all who would look to him would not die but have eternal life. So Joshua is kind of one of these typological figures of Jesus. Now, it's interesting that they actually have the same name in, in the Hebrew language. It was Yeshua, and that came into Greek as Jesus, and obviously into our language as Jesus, but it's the same name. So when we think about the importance of Joshua as a leader leading the people of Israel through the parted waters of the Jordan River and into the land of Canaan, the promised land, so too you have a Savior, a heavenly Joshua, who leads us across the River Jordan. And that's what people often refer to as death, right? Uh, he leads us safely through death because he's been to the grave in our place. He's, he's removed the sting of death. He's defanged death, if you will by his own death, but he rose victoriously, and he leads us across that Jordan into the promised land of heaven. So there's a lot of really interesting connections there. As the people of Israel enter into the land of Canaan, they begin by conquering a very famous town that we know as Jericho. And obviously, the walls come tumbling down. And I'm not going to sing for you today, so uh, you can all be thankful for that. But there are many Sunday school songs that sing about Joshua and how he fought the battle of Jericho. Now, that, that was a strange battle, no doubt. Uh, when the priests, upon God's command, march about the doomed city and they, they blow their trumpets and the walls come falling down, they, and then they go right in and, and they conquer the city. That would sort of start a string of successes. One after another, these enemy cities are taken until almost all of the land of Canaan is in possession now of Israel. Now, God had given some very important warnings to his people of Israel before they had even gotten into the land of, Israel, uh, of Canaan. And he, he warned them about uh, the false religions, the false gods of the people of Canaan, and that they were not to intermix with them and intermarry with them, and lest they 
also lust after their gods and begin to worship their gods and so on. And that was an important warning. However, as you read the history of the Old Testament, it becomes quickly depressing because the people of Israel didn't heed those warnings very well. Now, the conquered country is divided eventually amongst 12 tribes of Israel, which were named after the sons of Jacob and Joseph, from whom they had descended. The descendants of Levi, charged with care of the sanctuary in the tabernacle, and eventually they would be also involved in the temple. They received no land, but they were supported by the tithe, the tenth, the percentage that was paid by the other tribes. Eventually, after the death of Joshua, the Israelites, contrary to God's will, contrary to God's warnings, they begin to deal leniently with the survivors of the conquered Canaanites and, yes, even begin to take part in their false religions. And it's easy to sort of say, well, boy, they were stupid. I would never do that. But it wasn't always that blatant or that obvious or, you know, a headfirst dive into it. Sometimes it was a rather slow ease into it, maybe adopting a little bit of this, a little bit of that. I can mix the, the worship of the true God with a little bit of what I see going on over there until finally, uh, you know, a sin is always a slippery slope. Eventually, they have fallen away. And that's always the way uh, sin works and false teachings works. At first, it just begs for tolerance, but pretty soon it has taken over your whole house. So that's, that's a danger, and we see it over and over in the people of Israel. Uh, in fact, I would say from Joshua on, the history really becomes more and more depressing. There's this cycle of apostasy falling away, you know, them crying out to God and, and him sending a prophet, bring them to repentance. They, they sort of renew their zeal for, for God's promises, the, those gospel promises. They find their life in him, and then pretty soon they resort back to their old ways, and the whole cycle starts over again. Now, in order to correct his people, God caused the heathen neighbors in the land of Canaan to oppress the Israelites. And then again, to deliver the Israelites, he raised up first a series of judges. And these judges are not like we would think about our modern-day judges. There was some similarities. But these judges were somewhere between, you know, like we have a modern judge and a military leader and a sort of a political ruler, king-type figure, if you will. So it doesn't really fit our modern conception of what a judge is or does. It certainly would include some of that. But under the last and the greatest of the judges, Samuel, a thorough reformation of religion and morals is accomplished. So we talk a lot about the Reformation in the Lutheran Church, but Reformations are really nothing new. We find reforms and Reformations back in the Old Testament. We find them at various stages in church history. Obviously, none probably, you know, to us personally have had as a big impact as the Reformation that took place in the 1500s, but uh, nevertheless, this is not something new. So, this reformation of religion and morals is accomplished. Israel as a whole is a united kingdom, the 12 tribes. 
So now we're going to talk about the period of time from about 1100 to about 980 BC. When Samuel gets old, the Israelites notice that all the nations around them have their own king, and that makes them kind of jealous. You know, what God had given them is not good enough. So they say, well, why can't we be like them over there? You know, they've got kings. And uh, they begin to complain. It's like uh, anybody who's raised a child knows that peer pressure is a strange thing. And, you know, if, every, if all your friends have something, pretty soon you need to have it too. So that's kind of what goes on, you know, with these Israelites. They see everyone else has a king and they, they decide that God's not really good enough as a king for them. They need to have a flesh and blood king like everyone else has. And the lot falls on Saul, a man named Saul, who, who at first makes a, a good beginning, but soon things turn south. He proves to be disobedient to God and is rejected by God eventually. And so Samuel is sent to anoint Saul's successor, and I think you know him very well, uh, a man by the name of David. Actually, at this time, he's just sort of a boy. He's a shepherd boy. Shepherds play a prominent role in Bible history, for sure. Uh, Moses himself being a shepherd. We think about David. He's a shepherd boy of Bethlehem and a descendant of Judah. So he's of the tribe of Judah. And he becomes Saul's eventual successor, but not before there's a whole lot of drama. Now, a little bit about David. Uh, David was the Eddie Van Halen of his day. Yep, he was an accomplished harpist. And I'd like to say he was probably an electric harpist. He played lead harp, not not rhythm harp or whatever. Yeah, those are all bad, you know, guitar player jokes. I guess you can you can boo if you want, but Inez probably likes them. Yeah. Anyways, so David, he's an accomplished harp player. He he writes many great songs. Uh, Israel's top forty is filled with David's greatest hits. Uh, you know them as the Psalms. And David is brought to the court of this wayward Saul who is plagued by an evil spirit. And it's interesting because the Bible says that when David would play for him, he would find relief from this tormenting spirit that was on him. So, you know, music has that kind of uh, impact on us. It's, it's one of those, you know, strange things that it can, it can change our mood. And anyways, when the Philistine army invades Israel, David, a seemingly insignificant boy essentially kills their champion, the giant Goliath, with a stone from his shepherd's sling. Obviously, this is by God's plan, God's design. David's growing popularity, however, fills Saul with envy. Now he starts to see David as his rival, his enemy. So he he tries to kill David, and this mighty young hero is forced to live in exile until Saul, being engaged in another war, finally commits suicide when the battle goes against him. Now, uh, eventually David is proclaimed king, and under his rule, all enemies are fully conquered, and Israel becomes a great and wealthy nation. So there's, you know, there's wars to be fought for sure, but they're starting to look like there might be peace on the horizon. However, uh, you know, David had this desire to finally, now that they're, they're kind of settled in into their own place, so to speak, to build a temple, a more permanent structure for the, the worship of God. Remember, they've still been using the tabernacle, that sort of portable tent 
and he, he wants to build a temple. He's told he can't. It wasn't for him to do. And so we won't see the building of that temple until David's son Solomon comes along. Nevertheless, David beautifies Israel's worship with his many inspired psalms, and in them he repeatedly sings not just of his feelings and, oh, I shouldn't, I shouldn't say this, but it's not the, the shallow emotional music that we, we so uh, often gravitate towards in our world. You know, this isn't the pop music of the 80s. This isn't the contemporary kind of Christian songs that sing the same six words over and over and over that don't really say anything. You could just as easily sing them to your girlfriend or boyfriend. Th- these are substantive. So not only are the Psalms great hymns, not only do they describe the human condition, and uh, this is what makes them so relatable to us, because we can put ourselves in the place of the psalmist, they're wonderful prayers, they're wonderful praises, but they're also inspired by God, and so they also teach doctrine. And I think one of the things that's always surprising to people, when you read our Lutheran confessions, what book do you think they quote more than any other book in the Bible to prove our teachings. Psalms. The Psalms, yeah. I, I think people are always surprised to hear that, but because they think all the Psalms are, are great, you know, sort of little you know, poetic hymns or something like that. No, but they teach doctrine. They teach about the Savior. Jesus and his apostles quote freely from the Psalms as proof texts uh, concerning Jesus and his life and his suffering and death and resurrection. It's there that we see a lot of the, the teachings concerning God become concrete and, and so on and so forth. So there's a, there's a lot to be gleaned and learned from the Psalms. It's not just something that is an emotional appeal to us. It, it certainly, uh, like I said, has that relatability, but there is also a ton of substance there. They're very dense with meaning and rich in doctrine, teaching. As I said, in these psalms, David repeatedly sings of the coming Savior, who, according to God's promise, is to be, in fact, the descendant of David. So we we hear about those promises, uh, especially around Christmas, I think. However, a dark chapter in David's life follows. Now, the Bible does call David a man after God's own heart. And when you start to read the account of what follows, you, you go, really? A man after God's own heart? This sounds like a, a pretty a bad guy. Obviously, we're talking about his adultery with Bathsheba. If you want to read that account, you kind of see how sin is definitely a slippery slope. How one glance as he's looking from his rooftop and he sees a woman bathing kind of incites a, a lustful thought in his mind which leads to sinful actions. He seeks after her. He calls her to himself. He commits adultery with her. And then he starts the the plan of cover-up. He sends her husband off to war. He wants to make it seem as though the child is not his. And when all of these things don't work for him, eventually he has Uriah, her husband, killed. Adultery has led to murder. There's a dark time in David's life where we're told that there might have been a period of about a year where we don't hear any account of him praying. Uh, it seems that he is silent. The weight of this sin has, has weighed heavily upon him. 
he very well has fallen from the faith. But God hasn't forgot about David. Even in spite of all of his rebellious acts and his sinful acts, he sends his prophet to David, his prophet Nathan. And Nathan tells him this beautiful parable. And of course, David is outraged at the story. And I would encourage you to read that. It's just, it's beautiful. It's wonderful. But at the end of the, the parable there, Nathan basically holds the law up to David's faith. And he, and he says, this is you. You're the sinful man. You're the one who's done this. And so David confesses his sin. He, he, he's very open about it. And he pleads for God's mercy. And God, through his prophet Nathan, assures him uh, that God has forgiven him, that he won't die. If you want to read about that, you can read Psalm 51, which is just an amazing psalm. Uh, we, we have parts of that that we sing in our liturgy, in our church services. The create in me a clean heart, O God. Uh, sometimes it's called the offertory, and I don't like calling it that because it's such a it's such a beautiful confession of faith, a response to the sermon that I think when people hear it, they go, oh, get your checkbook out. It's time for the offering to come around, you know. That, that's really not what its purpose is. So, uh, but that's where we t- tend to sing it in our liturgy. Now, David, after all this, he's got some kids, and they're not such great kids. You know, the apple doesn't always fall far from the tree. So some of the weaknesses that we see in David are perpetuated in his children. David eventually has to later flee from his son Absalom, who leads a rebellion against him. And before David dies, he has his son Solomon anointed as his successor. And of course, Solomon is famed for his God-given wisdom. He writes the book of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Songs, uh, the latter of which we would say is an allegory picturing the love between the promised Savior and his church. Uh, It's Solomon who builds and dedicates a beautiful house of worship, the temple, finally. And it's magnificent. He spared no expense. However, Solomon, like his father, only in some ways, his weakness for the ladies is even worse. In fact, Solomon has so many wives that he has later turned his heart to other gods because of his wives who come from all over the world and so on. By the time of Solomon's death, uh, the signs of religious and moral decay are uh, certainly unmistakably on the horizon for the people of Israel. Now, just one more word about Solomon. It seems as though, uh, from what we know from his writings and also from, uh, you know, the various church historians and everything, that Solomon did eventually repent and come back to the faith like his father David. But Again, it was the sin, his, his, his lustful sin, uh, his weakness for the ladies that leads him away from the true God of Israel. Even though he is uh, certainly wise, uh, you can read the book of Proverbs and you see Solomon's wisdom. Uh, there's no one like him. There's never been anyone as wise as Solomon. So after Solomon, however, you come to an interesting period in the kingdom of Israel. So we're going to be talking now from the, about the period of time between, say, 980 B.C. to about 720 B.C. Because of the unreasonable severity of Solomon's son and successor Rehoboam, the northern tribes, the northern ten tribes, withdraw to form a kingdom of their own under Jeroboam. 
Thus, in the place of the great united monarchy of David, there are now two smaller kingdoms. The kingdom is divided, and it consists of the kingdom of Israel, the ten northern tribes, with its capital at Samaria, and then Judah, composed of the two southern tribes, with their capital at Jerusalem. So uh, you can already tell by looking at the capitals which one becomes historically more significant as we move on. The kingdom of Israel has one idolatrous ruler after another. We're talking about that northern kingdom. And so God's prophets, Elijah and Elisha, well, they, they're sent there and they succeed in stemming the tide of this idolatrous worship in the kingdom of Israel for a short time. But finally, Israel is conquered by the Assyrians, a very powerful uh, foreign enemy, and their capital of Samaria is destroyed. The people are killed or dispersed or taken captive. And pretty soon, virtually all traces of those 10 tribes of Israel are lost. They're uh, virtually wiped from the face of the map. Now, in the meantime, You've got the smaller kingdom of Judah to the south, which, uh, as I said, is, was smaller than the northern kingdom. It has as its chief assets the temple and the true worship of God. And remember, the capital is in Jerusalem. But while they have some good kings, they too were not immune to the moral and religious decay that corrupted the northern tribes. So the religious and moral and social corruption prevail eventually. However, because God has made a promise way back in the Garden of Eden that he reiterated through Abraham, uh, through David, and so on, he also promised that the Savior was to come from the line of Judah. So God mercifully preserves it from complete disintegration. So one of the things that I think you need to keep in mind as you read the Bible history narrative is that God is in control of history, and he's constantly working in fulfillment of his promises. Now, that doesn't always occur the way we might think it should or would. Very often we see corrupt and evil world rulers, and nevertheless, God uses them to accomplish his will and to bring about his plan of salvation. That's where this is all leading, right? Remember where we started. We started with Adam and Eve in the garden, we had the fall into sin, and everything since that time has been working towards God's fulfillment of a promise of a Savior. And in the meantime, we've got a lot of, you know, stories that warn us about the dangers of sin. We see it, it, its work in other people throughout these accounts. We also see examples of what true faith looked like as people clung to the promise of that Savior through these difficult times and through, you know, all sorts of political circumstances and everything else that went with it. So God preserves Judah from complete disintegration, and some of the most beautiful prophecies concerning the coming Messiah are written at this time, especially we think about the prophet Isaiah. And of course, we, we often hear those prophecies at Christmas time, for instance, Isaiah 7, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And of course, Isaiah 9, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
But Isaiah also prophesied some other interesting details about the promised Messiah that didn't quite fit with the way most people thought things should work out. For instance, we think about Easter time when we hear about our, our Lord's passion. We often hear the reference to Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Amazing. It speaks of a suffering servant, and it's by his stripes, by his wounds, that we would be healed. Fantastic. So that brings us to the time period from roughly about 720 B.C., to the time of 63 BC. And, you know, obviously we're coming up fairly close to New Testament times there within, say, you know, 60 years of the birth of Christ. So, the prophecies of impending doom uttered by Jeremiah and other prophets that God had sent to his people, guess what? They go unheeded. Time after time, God would send his prophets to his people. They wouldn't listen to him. They wouldn't heed the warnings. In fact, they would sometimes even kill the messenger, kill the prophets that God had sent to him. So God sends the Babylonians, another foreign power, to come in and conquer Judah, that southern, that southern kingdom. And they destroy Jerusalem and even that great temple that Solomon had built. And the people are taken captive. So once again, God's people find themselves as captives in a foreign land of Babylon. During the 70 years of the Babylonian captivity, the prophets Ezekiel and Daniel, they comfort Judah and the people of God and prophesy concerning its future deliverance and, most importantly, the promised Savior. So again, this is the whole point. If you don't read the Old Testament as a book that centers on Jesus— you know, it'd be the promise of him at that point. But nevertheless, that is at the very heart and center of worship in the Old Testament. It is at the very heart and center of the Old Testament scriptures. If you miss that, you've completely missed the point. So the Bible talks about history, it talks about geography, it talks about a lot of these other things, but it's not a book about those things. It's a book about our sin, God's promise of a Savior, and God's fulfillment of that promise in the person of Jesus Christ who lives and dies in our stead as the payment for our sins and who clothes us with his righteousness through the power of the Holy Spirit working in the gospel. Ezekiel, Dan Daniel come and they comfort the people and prophesy concerning its future deliverance and the promised Savior. And upon their return to the homeland, the Jews eventually rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. And 400 years before Christ's birth, Malachi brings the Old Testament record to a close. He's the last of the prophets that we find in the Old Testament. So we've got a 400-year period between Malachi and when Christ is born, approximately, that there is sort of silence. There's prophetic silence. Uh, it's not that nothing's going on. There's actually quite a bit that's going on. And maybe if, if you've ever heard about the apocryphal, or the apocryphal books. Uh, this is often wh what these books help fill in that gap for us. So 
at Luther's time, many Bibles, most all Bibles, had the apocryphal books. It was always recognized that they were not on the same level as the inspired scriptures, but they were nevertheless important and good for us to read. Uh, for one one reason being that they also they give us this historical insights into what happens in this intertestamental period between Malachi and the birth of Christ. So Malachi prophesies, and he points forward to the Son of Righteousness who shall arise with healing in his wings. And finally, in the year 63 BC, uh, the political landscape changes. Judea, that part of that southern tribe there, southern uh, kingdom, becomes part of the great Holy Roman Empire. So the scepter has indeed departed from Judah, and this was now hearkening the coming of that time when the long-promised Savior is to make his appearance on the scene. So uh, we've covered quite a few years in our, in our sort of, I always call this the Reader's Digest Bible history lesson, because obviously we're summarizing these things. We're very, very brief. Uh, it's good to go and read these stories and these accounts for yourself. But uh, even if you don't, at least you kind of have a basic idea of how these things all fit in together. I remember going through Sunday school, and it seemed to me uh, as a kid that one week you were hearing about David and Goliath, the next thing you, week you were hearing about Jesus healing a leper, and then the next week you had Joshua and the Battle of Jericho. And I was so confused. I had no idea. How do these things fit together? I mean, where, where was Jesus when J Joshua was fighting the Battle of Jericho? Oh, you know, you had, I mean, as a kid, you had no idea that they're not, they're not living at the same time, right? So a basic understanding of Bible history aids us. We're able to sort of put things in a bigger picture. And even when we start to get into the details and we read these accounts up close with a magnifying glass, even dissecting them, if you will, I think it's always important that we never lose sight of the big picture. And I think that's, that's another uh, tendency that we have is we get so focused in on a chapter a verse, and that becomes our entire world. We sort of blow that up, and that becomes the basis for everything we know and we believe. Well, there's more to it than that. There's always a context. And so having this big picture also keeps us from becoming too nearsighted. Anyways, th there's, there's great value in having these kinds of lessons. I'm just going to talk, uh, give you a couple of other prophecies from this time period, you know, going way back to Moses' time up until Malachi. In the book of Numbers, uh, we had that promise that the Savior would come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. We had the promise in Deuteronomy 18 that God would raise up a prophet like Moses and that it was to him that the people were to listen, that you and I were to listen. Uh, in Jeremiah, Jeremiah the prophet uh, had prophesied that the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall, be, he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, and this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. Fantastic. The doctrine of the gospel, the teaching of the gospel is there throughout the Old Testament. This understanding that we have that it's not my works or deeds that gets me into heaven, it's Christ's righteousness. As he clothes me 
in the waters of baptism as he comes to me and forgives my sins in the words of absolution spoken in the gospel, as he comes to me in the Lord's Supper with his body and blood given and shed for the forgiveness of my sins. These are not teachings that are foreign to the Old Testament. The Lord is our righteousness, Jeremiah proclaimed. It is by grace we are saved. It's not our righteousness, it's the Lord's that he places upon us, that he clothes us with, that he that he credits to our account by faith. I hope that you've enjoyed uh, this brief summary of Bible history. And remember, the Old Testament is about how God works to keep his promise to send that Messiah. As we go on in future lessons now, we're starting to zero in on the person and work of that Messiah. So we're going to begin in our next episode talking about the person of Jesus Christ. So we hope that you will join us next time here on Under the Oaks. Get ready, everybody. You're welcome, Inez.